Today we're continuing our unrestrained series. We said we're going to take a number of weeks to walk through the book of Colossians. And uh, so we started this last week. And so if you uh, missed it and you're interested in catching it up, then you can listen to our podcast or go to our Facebook page, our website, and uh, hear our intro stuff from last week in the first part of chapter one. Um, but just a quick recap. This is one of the letters that Paul wrote to the early church. And so Paul was this amazing guy who went around uh, the Middle East and Europe and parts of Asia, helping people to discover Jesus and then forming these communities of people who were following Jesus together that we now call the church. And Paul would then write these letters to the different churches in different cities to help them understand what it looked like to follow Jesus authentically and to make sure that they were staying on the right track. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in a city called Colossae. And if we were to sum up what this letter is all about, it's really wrestling with the question, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough to make us right with God and to give us everything that we need to be able to live the lives that God wants us to be able to lead? And uh, as we will see through this series, and in particular through today, Paul's resounding answer to that question is yes and then some. And uh, today in particular, we're going to see just this unbelievable outline, uh, outline of everything that Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So as always, you have teaching notes inside of Caring Connection. So if it's helpful to jot some things down as we go through, feel free to use that. As we jump in today, I want to ask you this question. If you met someone new, so let's say you met someone new at work or a new neighbour or someone that you became friends with and you wanted to describe to them someone else that you have a strong relationship with, so maybe a spouse or one of your kids or you wanted to talk about your best friend, so with this new person, what sorts of things would you say to them to help them understand what this other person is that you know? You might begin by saying to them, well, these are the sorts of things that they do. This is what they do for work, or these are some of the hobbies that they have. These are the ways that they spend their time throughout the week. You might talk about some of their characteristics, the things that they're passionate about, the things that are really identify who they are and are the sort of person that they are. You might even pull your phone out and say, well, here's a photo of them and show them a photo. Or you might even have a video of them doing something and so you could show them a video as well. You'd kind of get into that kind of zone. But at the end of the day, all of that is still a weak second to being able to meet them in person, isn't it? The best way for that person to really get to know your spouse, your kid, your best friend, is for them to meet them in person. And in today's passage we discover that that is the main reason why Jesus came to earth, was to show us exactly what God is like, to help us understand what God is like in all of God's fullness, not just some snapshot, not just some photo, not just some description of God, but to really get to know who God is. And the good thing is that God hasn't just told us what he's like, he hasn't just left us some clues that we can hopefully follow in order to be able to find out what he's like. God has come to us in human form, in the person of Jesus, up close and personal, so that we can get to know him and what he's passionate about and then understand what God's heart is for each one of us. And as we'll see as we go through today, the outcome of that is absolutely staggeringly good news for every single one of us. So we're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes this. He says, Christ Jesus is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He's the firstborn son, superior to all created things. For through him, God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers, and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. 
And so this first sentence that we've got here in verse 15 is absolutely crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came to earth. Jesus is the visible likeness of the invisible God. Now, sometimes we can translate or understand that word likeness as kind of being an image or a representation. So if you think of a portrait or if you think of maybe a coin, so like back in Jesus' day, a coin with Caesar's likeness on it, that's what we often think of when we think of the word likeness. Something that's kind of like the person, but it's just kind of a representation of them. The original word that Paul uses here is actually better understood as a complicated word, which is manifestation. But the word manifestation really just means something that is clearly revealed, something that takes on physical form, something that we can actually see. So when something is manifested, that means it becomes real and we can see it, it's physical and it's there in front of us. And so what Paul says, that's probably a more accurate translation, is that Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the physical form, not just a likeness, not just a portrait or an image on a coin, but the full representation in physical form of God himself. And this is super important for us because what that means is that when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. Anytime that we're wondering what God's like, we just need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, read about what Jesus is like And there we discover what God is like. If we want to know what's important to God, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God's priorities are, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God's heart is, then we look at Jesus. But for the Colossians, this was an even more important thing for them to be able to understand because of a cultural philosophy that was starting to impact them. So this is going to get a little bit complicated, so just hang in there for a little while. Back around then, there was this thing called Gnosticism with a G, which is always better, Gnosticism, I think. It's always easier. So Gnosticism, which is the belief that everything that's physical, so matter, people, anything that is a physical thing, is evil, and everything that is spiritual is pure and good. Okay, So that's at the core of Gnosticism. Everything that's matter and that you can actually touch and see is bad. Everything that's spiritual is something that's really, really good. And so the Gnostics wanted the Colossians and other people around that time to accept that there's no way, therefore, that Jesus could be a human being because Jesus couldn't possibly take on this evil, dirty human form. That's not possible. If he's supposed to be a good guy, then he has to be spiritual. And so they were trying to convince people that Jesus was actually more like a ghost or an apparition. Yes, you could see him, but he was just a spiritual form effectively. And flowing out of that, one of the other things that the Gnostics significantly believed was that there were all of these other spiritual beings, like Jesus, who effectively were like rungs on a ladder that help you to unlock who God is. So as you follow and learn from these spiritual beings, you get more and more clues that help you to understand this is what God's like. And if you do that long enough, you climb to the top of the ladder and you unlock the mysteries of who God is. And so some of the Colossians had then started to embrace this Gnostic philosophy and had started to believe that Jesus was just this spiritual being who was simply a portrait or a likeness of God, that he wasn't fully God, he was just one of these spiritual beings who helps us to understand what God is like. And if we follow enough of those clues, then ultimately we'll discover God. But there's no way that he could be fully God because he's just one of the beings, and there's no way he could be fully human either, because then he'd be dirty and wrong. And so Paul pushes back on this in the strongest possible terms throughout the whole letter. This is one of the key reasons that he writes to them. 
And so he says two things very, very clearly. First of all, Jesus is fully God. 100% God. Not just a spiritual being that helps us to understand who God is, but the full, complete revelation of God. Everything about God we discover in Jesus. And Jesus was fully human. Not just a spiritual ghost who appeared sort of in human form, but an actual, real human being. Why is this important? Well, because we have to understand that Jesus needs to be God or else he can't actually do anything for us. If Jesus is not God, then he's just a really good guy who comes to earth, does some really nice things for people, teaches some really good stuff, but then dies a really, really sad death, as a number of really good people have done over the centuries. But it doesn't change anything. Jesus has to be fully God in order for him to be able to do something for us, to make us right with God. And Jesus has to be fully human, because if he's not fully human, then he can't understand what life is like for us. He just kind of ends up being this superhero who sort of floats above existence, but doesn't really understand how difficult life is for us. And so Paul wants to make it very, very clear that when we see Jesus, we see God, all of God, the full representation of God, And we see a full human being who is the best version of what humanity looks like. So that's a lot. And that's the first half of verse 15. So we're going to be here for a while today. No, we're not. Sorry. I'm not going to take that long with all the rest of it. Because there's so much more that Paul outlines as he continues on describing what Jesus is like. He goes on to say then that everything was created through Jesus. Everything in all of creation, in fact, everything in the entire universe was created through Jesus and was created for Jesus. And so Paul uses this word that we've translated as firstborn in verse 15, that Jesus is the firstborn son. But this isn't about the order of creation to say that God created Jesus and then God created everything else. We believe that Jesus has always existed since the beginning of time. But when Paul's using that word firstborn, he's really talking about heirship or an inheritance. So in Jesus' time, in Paul's time, the person who was the firstborn was the one who would receive the full inheritance from the Father. And so Paul is saying Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Everything's created through him and everything's actually given to him as his inheritance, which is crucial for us to understand and we're going to unpack that more as we keep going. Verse 17 then, Paul says, Christ existed before all things and in union with him all things have their proper place. So as we've already said, Jesus existed before anything else was created But Paul then says Jesus is what holds everything together. Unity that is centred around Jesus is what keeps us on the same page, keeps us on track, helps us to find our place in life. And it's helpful to think about the opposite of that. When we don't centre on Jesus, that's when things tend to spiral out of control. That's true for us in churches, when we get hung up on theology, when we get hung up on different practices and say that's the most important stuff and forget about Jesus, that's when things spin away and we experience disunity. And it's true in the community around us as well. We see people who are struggling to just understand what is life all about because they don't have this centrepiece of Jesus. So what's the point in life? What are my priorities supposed to be? What's my identity all about? We lose that sense of unity when we don't focus on Jesus. The message translation of these verses is super, super helpful to be able to help us understand it even more. It says this, 
We look at this son, Jesus, and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and we see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and he holds it all together right up to this moment. So spacious is Jesus, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. Just this glorious picture of who Jesus is, that everything's created in Jesus, but as we unite around Jesus, every single one of us find our place within that. Verse 18 then, Paul continues on, there's still more. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the source of the body's life. He's the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. Paul really loves this metaphor of the church being the body, the idea that just like a human body, we as the church all have a different role to play, and when we work together, we're able to do the things that Jesus wants us to be able to do. But... Paul is always quick to remind us that Jesus is the head of the body, the one who we take our cues from, the one who we take our directions from. Jesus is the one who leads the church. Our church, every other church, the church universal, Jesus is the one who leads the church. Not me, not our board, not any one of us. Ultimately, we all follow Jesus and he's the one who leads us. And so just like our bodies take direction from our minds and our heads, we in the church take direction from Jesus. But Jesus isn't just the head, he's also the source of the body's life. Other translations talk about Jesus being the heartbeat of creation, which is beautiful imagery. Jesus is the one who pumps nutrients around so that we can all do the stuff that we need to do to live and to thrive and to live the way that he wants us to. Verse 19 then, Paul continues, he's still not done. For it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Again, Jesus shows us fully what God is like, but that was an intentional decision by God. Other translations say it this way, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. God actually loved the idea of Jesus coming and showing us fully what he was like in human form. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a begrudging, oh, I guess we'll do it this way. This was awesome to God. He was like, this is a great idea. I'm going to get to show you all what I'm like in human form. Enter Jesus. And Paul says again, he's the full nature of God, not just part of God, not just some of God, but every part of God is reflected through Jesus. Then he continues in verse 20. Through the Son then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. So God didn't just decide to send Jesus so that we could discover what he's like. God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. Other translations use the word reconcile, which is this beautiful relational word. When you think about two people who are in conflict, reconciling, it's this beautiful picture of setting aside their differences, setting aside the things that have caused conflict and saying we're back on the same page together. We're back in a full relationship. And so scripture is very clear that God is the one who comes to us. God initiates the reconciliation. God initiates the making right 
of our relationship. It's not because we got ourselves together enough. It's not because we earned it. It's because it was God's choice, God's decision to say, I want you to be a part of my family. Takes it even further. God made peace with us through Jesus. And so when you think about the idea of peace, it's putting an end to fighting, throwing down our arms, being able to say things are back the way that they're supposed to be. And so Paul says, through Jesus, that's what's happened to the entire universe. Has happened through Jesus. That's the reality of how God sees us and looks at us right now. And Paul then keeps going by making this even more clear in verses 21 and 22. At one time you were far away from God and you were his enemies because of the evil things that you did and thought. But now because of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure and faultless into his presence. So it's a good reminder that we were God's enemies when this happened. Again, not because of God's choices. We're the ones who chose to walk away from God. And we often talk about sin being selfishness. That the root cause of every sin is selfishness. I'll choose what I want is best for me at the expense of other people. And so we're the ones who chose to live that way, which is the complete opposite of how God wants us to live, which creates conflict. And so we become God's enemies because of the choices that we make. But even though all of us are guilty of that at different times, living lives that are filled with selfishness, God chose to make us his friends. Not just put up with us, not just kind of bring us back into some kind of neutral, let's not talk about it kind of relationship, but to be friends, to be family with God. But even more than that, Paul says that we're now holy and pure and faultless. And other translations use words like spotless, without blemish. One of the ways that it's understood is to be free from accusation, which in its original context actually meant no one could even try and take you to court because there's nothing that they could even accuse you of. Forget about whether you've done anything wrong. They can't even start to accuse you to take you to court. That's how God sees us, pure, spotless, blameless, completely free from accusation. And how does all that happen? Through the physical death of Jesus. Again, Paul makes a not-so-subtle dig at the Gnostics to say, no, Jesus was a real human being who died a real human death. His blood was shed as the final sacrifice for us so that all of these things could be done. So let's just recap what Paul has said in just these few verses. Jesus is the one who comes and shows us what God is like. Jesus is the one who everything is created through and Jesus is the one who holds everything together. Jesus is the head of the church and Jesus is the heart of the church. Jesus is the one who gives us peace with God, allows us to be his friends. Jesus allows us to be seen as pure and faultless and free from accusation. That's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus has done for us. That's why when we use this word gospel, we talk about it being good news because that's ridiculously good news. Just think about all of that. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done for us. And that's who we are now because of that. And sometimes we can forget about that if we've been around the church for a while and not allow ourselves to be blown away by how absolutely incredible all of those truths are. So what do we do with all this as we begin to wrap up today? 
When verse 23, Paul says, You must, of course, continue faithful on a firm and sure foundation. And you must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope that you gained when you heard the gospel. It is of this gospel that I, Paul, became a servant. This gospel which has been preached to everybody in the world. We've talked before about how the word gospel is a word that was used a lot in Paul's time as a declaration that something had changed for the better that affected absolutely everyone everywhere. And so Paul is saying, when you heard this gospel, this good news that something had changed, something has changed because of Jesus that affects everyone, you must now continue on a firm and sure foundation that comes from that truth. Build your life from that core. Start with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and build everything else out from that. So as we wrap up today, this is a question for us to reflect on as we head into this week. What's your foundation like? As you sit here this morning, as you think about what's coming up this week, how would you describe your foundation? Would you say that it is strong and it's secure? Would you say that it's a bit shaky, it's a bit wobbly at times, particularly when the storms come? The good news for us as we head into this week is regardless of what comes up this week, regardless of whether we've got really good things that we're excited about that are happening this week, or whether we've got some really significant challenges in front of us, we can start from this foundation. Jesus comes to show us what God is like in all of God's fullness And the picture that we see in Jesus is absolutely beautiful, filled with love. And that's what God's motivation is in sending Jesus so we can discover what God's like, but then enter into a full, complete relationship with God, where God now sees us as his friends, at peace with him, set free, rescued, pure, spotless, without accusation. That's how we can live this week, because that's how God sees us. And then as we enter into all the different sets of circumstances that we face, we've got the opportunity not to be rocked, but to have this secure foundation from which everything flows out of. So I'm going to pray that as we head into this week, we can be blown away over and over again by just how amazing Jesus is and what he's done for us and that we can take security from what he has shown us and what he's given us. Let's pray. Jesus, there really aren't enough words for us to be able to describe how magnificent you are. It is staggering that you would come and that you would show us the fullness of God, that through you we get to discover this amazing God, the God of the universe. You show us what God is like in God's entirety. That is astounding in itself. But then to discover that you're the one who created everything, that everything was created for you, that you're the one who unites the universe together, you're the one who helps us to be able to find our place, to discover how we're supposed to fit into the complexities of life, to be able to discover that you're the one who does away with all of the mistakes that we make, all of the selfish motives that we have, all the times that we mess up. You've dealt with that once and for all. And now God sees us as reconciled, as at peace, as friends, as family, with nothing in between us, pure, spotless, blameless, free from accusation. You do all of that for us for no other reason than because you love us. That is astoundingly good news. 
And it is something which can be this incredible firm foundation on which we can build our lives. And so as we head into this week, I pray that you would continue to challenge each one of us about the perceptions that we have that differ from what we've talked about this morning. Those places where we doubt that this could be true. We doubt that, God, you could be this kind, this loving towards us, that you would really do away with all the stuff that we do wrong. I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us that you love us that much and that that would then inspire us about what it looks like to live in the freedom that you give us, to live these unrestrained lives where we're not held back. We can live out of this foundation that you give us and then build our lives, our priorities, our focus, our purpose out of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.